Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, folks. Dominic here. The next episode, number 164, will release one week later than intended. I need a bit more time to revise and polish the narrative. But I don't want to leave you in the cold, so here is a prelude. In episode 164, I will be covering the achievements of King Horemheb, or rather, the achievements of his builders, in the Grand Temple of Karnak. These included three enormous structures, pylons, each of which have their own intriguing tales to tell. To cover that story properly, I need to do a recap on the recent history of Karnak. It's been a while since we visited the temple properly, so I thought I would cover that in a quick prelude. That way, we'll all be on the same page when episode 164 releases. If you're up to speed on Karnak, feel free to skip this one. Otherwise, enjoy the tale. The year was 1329 BCE, approximately. In the southern city, Waset, or Thebes, great works were underway. The pharaoh, Horemheb, had commissioned huge monuments for Amun-Ra, for Thoth, and many other gods. For the next few years, Karnak would be a hive of building activity. Dust, shouts, and hammering accompanied the sounds of worship. It's been a while since we really visited Karnak Temple. Our last proper tour was in the reign of Amunhotep III, who established wonderful things for the great god Amun. Since then, we've stopped by periodically as each king leaves their mark. But Horemheb's reign would see a great deal of change at Karnak. The new king inherited a swathe of building projects left unfinished by his predecessors. He also inherited the restoration project, that ongoing effort to undo the damage of Akhenaten. As a result, Horemheb's reign is one of the most important reigns in Karnak's long history. Over the next few years, Egyptian builders would renovate, modify, and even demolish parts of Karnak Temple. It was a messy, complicated process, but the results speak for themselves. To this day, large sections of Karnak Temple follow the pattern that Horemheb laid down. With that in mind, we can't really tell Horemheb's story without recapping recent events. The policies of Ai, Tutankhamun, Nefer-Neferu-Aten, and Akhenaten all had an effect on Horemheb's work, and on Karnak as a whole. Many of Horemheb's greatest monuments connect in some way with those earlier rulers, so it's worth taking a moment to reset our stage. Our last tour was in the reign of Amunhotep III. That great king had died around 1362 BCE, give or take. King Horemheb came to power around 1330 BCE, so 30 years approximately between the two rulers. Normally, that would not be significant, 
but those decades had been particularly eventful. The Temple of Karnak, the House of Amun-Ra, had suffered political interference, economic reform, and even physical attack. It was an unusually turbulent time for the temple, and that turbulence would shape many of Horemheb's decisions as a pharaoh. So what happened? While following the death of Amunhotep III, his son came to power as Amunhotep IV. And for a time, things were good. The new, younger king carried on the traditions. He added structures to Karnak with elaborate decorations. One of these was a vestibule, a magnificent porch that embellished the temple's main entrance. That vestibule is still visible today, sort of. If you go to Karnak's open-air museum, archaeologists have reconstructed one wall of the porch. It shows Amunhotep IV in a classic pose, grabbing enemies by the hair and preparing to smite them. His warrior power, his sacrifices before the gods, remain in the temple, just not in their original spot. So Amunhotep IV carried on the work of his father. But soon, things took a turn. The new king was heavily invested in worship of the sun, specifically the sun god, Ra Horakti, who is in the Aten. Ra Horakti Aten, or just Aten, would be the new king's favoured deity. And soon, he began to worship that deity, explicitly, at Karnak. Amunhotep IV erected a suite of shrines in Karnak Temple. The locations of these buildings are a bit vague, but we know one of them for certain. At the eastern end of Karnak, the young king established a temple called Gempa-Aten, or the Place of Finding the Aten. This temple faced the eastern horizon, the land of the rising sun, and it stood slightly apart from the old buildings of Amun. So the new king was still adding to Karnak precinct, but his monuments were a bit unorthodox, and partly separated from the greater temple. So far, not too bad. But then things changed. About five years into his reign, Amunhotep IV declared his love and favour for Ra Horakti Aten. He would honour this deity above all other gods. The king made a grand speech, part of which survives, in which he declared that the gods' bodies, their statues and physical forms, were irrelevant, no longer effective. What was effective was Aten, and the pharaoh was his son. Soon, the king renamed himself along those lines. He changed his identity from Amun-Hotep, or Amun is satisfied, to Ak-En-Aten, effective for Aten. At this point, things were taking a turn for the worse. Akhenaten had built shrines for his favourite god within Karnak precinct, and normally that wouldn't be an issue. Karnak has plenty of small temples and shrines to various deities, not just Amun. But soon, the pharaohs started diverting resources away from Amun and the other gods, and he began funneling those resources to Aten. Again, we have traces of this policy, hieroglyphic inscriptions that record the lavish offerings gathered from farms and delivered to Aten's sacred house. These records are damaged, but it seems that Akhenaten began starving Amun and much of Karnak of their supplies. 
We don't know if that was intentional or just a byproduct of the whole focusing on Aten initiative, but the result was the same. Karnak's shrines and offerings began to decline. The king had brought on a religious recession. Over the next few years, things went from bad to worse. Soon, Akhenaten abandoned Karnak and the city of Waset, or Thebes, altogether. He moved north to a new residence, the city of Aket-Aten, or Amana. There, he would honour the great deity, Rahurakti-Aten, for twelve long years. Meanwhile, back at Karnak, the temple seems to have stagnated. Various monuments, like pylon gateways and beautiful halls, were left unfinished, partially built. As Akhenaten decamped to his new city, the royal builders and artisans went with him. Soon, Karnak probably seemed like a house half-finished. It was still magnificent, with its towering gates and obelisks, but around those monuments, a whole host of structures stood incomplete. Where courtyards should have filled with sunlight, there were half-erected columns and dirt. Where mighty pylons should have risen high, there were piles of stone or brick waiting for completion. Shrines were closed, their statues were gone. Priests, if any remained, tended a house devoid of resources. If the people came to Karnak, they probably wouldn't find festivals, just quiet, and maybe fear? I'm dramatizing, but you get the point. Officially, Akhenaten had abandoned Karnak, and traces of his ideas left in those royal proclamations suggest a temple whose supplies had vanished, whose priests were reduced or gone, and whose statues, the gods' very bodies, had lost their power. Not a pretty picture for the once mighty temple. Twelve years passed, and Akhenaten did his thing. Living at Amana, Akhenaten honoured his favourite god and ignored most of the others. If that was all he did, it might have been fine, a bit unusual, but nothing too terrible. But about ten years into his reign, something went terribly wrong. For reasons still unknown, Akhenaten went to war against the god Amun. Having mostly ignored Amun previously, he now turned and began to attack. Akhenaten sent out agents, masons and builders, to damage the name of Amun. Naturally, this involved destruction at Karnak. Royal workers came to Karnak and Luxor Temple nearby, and using their chisels, they began to erase the name and image of Amun. Wherever the god stood visible, Akhenaten's agents attacked it. The damage was widespread, the masons even hacked away at royal cartouches. The names of various kings, like Amun-Hotep III, suffered partial damage, as workers erased the hieroglyphs for Amun. Soon, Karnak filled with dust shorn from the walls, and within a few weeks or months, it became a house of shattered names. So Akhenaten had modified Karnak, and then abandoned it. Finally, he had defaced the house of Amun, leaving it broken, beaten, scarred. The king's policies had transformed from disinterest to disdain to outright hatred. 
and Karnak Temple suffered at every step. Finally, the renegade pharaoh died. In year 17 of his rule, Akhenaten breathed his last. And almost immediately, the counter-reformation began. Akhenaten's successor, a king named Nefer Nefru Aten, may have started to repair things with Amun. Small traces from this king's reign suggest that maybe Nefer Nefru Aten started to revive Amun worship. We get hints of new priests serving the great god and the pharaoh. But sadly, that's all we get. The archaeological and historical information here is slim, so we can't say what Nefer Neferu Aten was doing, at least not for sure. In Karnak Temple, there is no surviving trace of the ruler, no monument, no names. That doesn't mean they didn't exist, just we can't prove that they did. What we can say is that Nefer Neferu Aten continued using a name focused on Aten. So officially, they did not revive Amun in the royal pageantry. But still, they might have initiated policies that we don't know about yet. We're just not sure what they were. Nefer Neferu Aten's reign may have started things in motion, but it would take a bit longer for Amun to properly return to the stage. After three or four years, King Nefer Neferu Aten died, and the crowns passed to young Tutank Aten. Tutankaten, or Tutankamun, would be a more traditional figure. His government, led by councillors and officials, began undoing the damage caused by Akhenaten. They launched a countrywide program of restoration. Royal masons returned to the houses of Amun, and they began repairing Akhenaten's attacks. Images were restored or replaced. Hieroglyphs were fixed or covered with plaster and painted. Revival was the name of the game, and traces of this are visible at many shrines of Amun. Unfortunately, the restoration was a massive undertaking. By this point, Egypt had dozens of major temples, each with their own organizations and requirements, and the government had to address all of those needs simultaneously. This was a huge challenge. Pharaoh's house was rich insanely rich, but even they had limits. And we get a sense of that archaeologically. Tutankhamun is well known for restoring many things, but his monuments, his actual buildings, are relatively few, especially at Karnak. We know a few areas where Tutankhamun added structures or decoration, and we get hints that he established his own temple somewhere in the vicinity. But the king's monuments at Karnak itself are surprisingly few. Tutankhamun reigned for about 10 years, which sounds like a decent clip of time, but when it comes to temple building, 10 years really isn't long. With royal resources stretched thin across the country, even Tutankhamun's government could not add much to Karnak Temple. As a result, the Great Restoration Project was still incomplete by the time Tutankhamun died. Tutankhamun's death brought the reign of Ai, a short reign with just a few monuments and records. We don't know much, but it seems that King Ai carried on the work of restoration, 
The building sites at Karnak continued to bustle, and work proceeded. But still, the shopping list was huge, and resources were stretched thin. So when I passed to the west, the restoration still wasn't done. Karnak, it seems, was a very hungry temple. Finally, Hor M. Heb ascended the throne, and the new king immediately turned his sights on Karnak Temple. The House of Amun was probably a mess of building materials, scaffolding, dust, and disorganization. For 30 years, major projects had started, paused, been abandoned, been attacked, partially restored, and partially rebuilt. Simultaneously, new monuments had started, new structures meant to glorify the deities and their individual rulers. Put that together, and you have the world's largest fixer-upper. On taking the throne, King Horemheb and his officials and his builders were faced with a massive logistical challenge. Karnak was in chaos. Could they fix it? Well... Hi everyone, this is Scott. If you want to learn about the world's oldest civilizations, find out how they were rediscovered. Follow the story of Mark Antony and Cleopatra's descendants over ten generations, or take a deep dive into the Iron Age or the Hellenistic Era, then check out the Ancient World Podcast. Available on all podcasting platforms, or go to ancientworldpodcast.com. That's the Ancient World Podcast.